to the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, which are now entering their fourth year of broadcast. Who would have thought that when Seth died in 2014, all these years later we would be making a podcast in his memory? It's a really exciting time for Charlotte and me. We've been recording 30 podcasts, one for each day in November, as part of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Charlotte has been talking to all kinds of people involved with pancreatic cancer and over the next 30 days we will hear lots of personal stories. Stories of love, stories of commitment, stories of hope and sadly, as always with pancreatic cancer, stories of loss. Each story will help you understand the challenges of pancreatic cancer as well as the signs and symptoms and will help you to have conversations with people and ensure that they are aware of what to look out for. Join us each day for our Purple Rainbow podcast. If you miss any of the episodes, you can catch up by visiting www.purplerainbow.co.uk where all of the podcasts will be stored for you to listen to at your leisure. Follow us on your podcast channel, like and share, and join us for an interesting month with lots of stories of love and hope. Welcome to today's episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts, one of 30 episodes you're getting across November 2021 for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Charlotte, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had with Tony Duffy. Tony is a palliative care doctor and three years ago, his mum died from pancreatic cancer. I asked him what it was like being both a palliative care doctor and then the son of a patient. This probably happens quite a lot. I think there was a little bit of me that was annoyed that I'd, I'd possibly missed the signs of it. Um, but on reflection, you know, the signs can be so subtle with pancreatic cancer. Um Mum was losing a bit of weight. She was having some sort of upset in her, her bills and losing appetite. And she was actually diagnosed two weeks after my dad died. So trying to put, you know, I was probably a bit harsh in myself, I think. Interestingly, her, her GP felt the same way, that they'd possibly missed the diagnosis a little bit as well and phoned her up when she was diagnosed to apologise and you know I could I could identify with what they were feeling a little bit but the reality of it was that we never saw it coming she was a very fit and healthy lady um, so there was a sudden there was a sudden shock on the back of still grieving for my dad absolutely and I think I pro- probably went into doctor mode Actually, and I, I and I regret that to this day. I went into um, right. Okay, this is what we do here. So you're going to see an oncologist about chemotherapy, um, you know, and talking about all the, the sort of practicalities of things. When actually, what I wish I had done is taken a step back and looked at it as palliative care doctor actually and as a son um, because my mum was overwhelmed 
and she she was from a nursing background. She was a, a, sta- a night sister for many years, and I had this presumption that she would understand everything everything that's going on. Um, when actually none of us really did. It just it came so quickly, um, and she had one round of chemotherapy, one cycle of chemotherapy, and it made her very unwell. She ended up in hospital two days after it. Um, and again, I was in doctor mode, I think, the whole time. She was admitted and she was in pain and she was being sick after the chemo. She couldn't keep her painkillers down at the time. Um, and I'm, you know hunting around looking for doctors and people to prescribe things and um, I never wanted to be one of those relatives. I think that's something in, in, in the medical profession. But, you know, there were times where I, I did have to be that person and, and step up and say, can you please do something here? I'd say the first three or four months of the whole experience where it felt completely medical. It felt... This doctor, that doctor, this nurse, and um, we had upper GI specialist nurses, district nurses, we had practice nurses, we had oncologists, we had upper GI surgeons and GP, and I went along to all of these appointments. Um, and I think I probably got lost in all the medical stuff. But that's your world. So it does make sense that you would do that, I think. And I think in many ways you were doing it for your mum as well because you want to make sure that everything's being done correctly. Yeah. And you've got that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I've, I probably view that phase of things a little bit negatively. Once once we knew that mum wasn't going to manage the chemotherapy and, and it she made her own mind up that she didn't want any more, which I think in hindsight was definitely the right decision for her. Um, things moved on to what I would say was more of a um, palliative care time. Um, and I suppose in palliative care, we're quite keen not to have this distinction between you know this sudden change where you go from being treated to palliative care it it doesn't it shouldn't work like that um and that's a really important thing and it it, it, just in my mum's case it kind of that's the way it kind of worked out but um actually coming in nice and early with palliative support can you know can make a huge difference um i i was in the fortunate position to be able to help the GP, um, her mom, my mum's GP, and, and kind of say, I think it'd be good to refer my mum to palliative care. At that time, she was still up and about, going to Tesco, still driving. Um, and I think at that time, even the GP felt, oh, that's a bit early. But it worked out very well, so she got to see a, a palliative care um, consultant at Accord Hospice in Paisley, 
Um, and it just gave an extra layer of support. And it was a light touch at first. Um, but so that was probably about September time. And um, by Christmas time, things had changed quite dramatically and and um, my mum was getting a lot of pain, typically in her back um, and also quite a lot of nausea. Um, so the that input became really vital at that time. And she was admitted to the hospice over Christmas time and for symptom control. Um, but I think at that time, that was the point where I kind of got to be a son again. And I, because I, I, I trusted my colleagues who were looking after my mum to deal with that medical side of things. And we spent Christmas Day in the hospice together. You know, the focus, I wasn't having to worry about doses and medications and things like that. We got to just be a family. And I knew that my mum was getting support beyond the medication because it had been almost entirely, it, it, that's the way it felt up to then. You know, we were wrestling with boxes of pills and creon and various things and um, even, even I was starting to get a bit bogged down with it all. Um, so that, that period of having the, the, the hospice involved and from then on felt more like we're looking after my mum. She was she was she was the centre of attention, and there wasn't a diary of there wasn't a calendar of where we're going next. It was what what do you want to do today, mum? How are you feeling today? So, um, it was a it was a learning experience, definitely. So, do you think it's changed the way you deal with patients and their families now? A hundred percent, yeah. 100%. I think it's given me a much more of an insight into how overwhelming it can be. I think now whenever I prescribe medications for any condition, any symptom, I really try to go out my way to make sure that the patient understands why they're taking it, how to take it, and what to do if it's not working what to expect side effect wise. Um, I remember my mum developed a thing called opioid toxicity where she was taking morphine and started to hallucinate and was terrified. And that kind of made her lose all confidence in the painkillers. She was scared to take the painkillers after that, but she really needed them. So it was, I've really, I've learned a lot about preparing ahead um, and, and trying to really inform patients, trying to give them all the information I can and always give them a, a contact so they can get back in touch and say, well, that's not working. What do I do? Or that is working. When when will I see you next? Some, you know, just, I suppose that, that, that that's more the practical medical side of things. Um, with regards to advice for patients and their families, I was, I think now, if someone makes a decision not to have chemotherapy or go ahead with chemotherapy, you know, I, I think it's really entirely the individual. It's up to the individual and their family. 
on reflection, I think my mum died in the May. So the months that we had without all the medical appointments and things were, I think, as special as they could be focused on us as a family. So there wasn't a feeling of failure, a feeling of, you know, she'd given up. It actually, it gave her probably the best quality of life that she could have because the chemotherapy was, was making her less well. And I suppose in coming out of that is really trying to help families recognise that being looking after someone or putting all your efforts into helping someone manage their illness can take away that side of things where you're no longer it's not that you're no longer family but you're you become a carer you become and the time that you have with someone's precious and you can get so caught up in all of that um there's a lot of language used in the media about cancer about fighting and the war in cancer and the struggle the battle the fight and and it can put pressure on people it can put pressure on families to look for that next thing that next treatment you know um, and that in turn can put pressure on patients to feel that they need to keep going I think when we all accepted as a family and mum said that that's me. I just want, I just want to spend time with you, and I want to be comfortable. You know that that was a big change, and and we got to be a family. We got to be less less time as carers, and that that was that was a huge huge change. So, trying to encourage families whenever they can to take that step back and be a son, a daughter, a mum, and whatever, just to drop the reins a little bit and and just sit and and spend time with a loved one. We've talked a a lot about your mum, but I feel like I know nothing about her. Would you like to share your memories of your mum, please? Because I think that'd be lovely. Definitely, definitely. My my mum was, um, she was a wonderful person. She really was. And um, I'm the youngest of of three. I've got an older brother, Jim, and an older sister, Colette. Um... And so my mum worked for years as a, a night sister in the Southern General in Glasgow. Um, and she was she was adored by all our patients. She really was. And um, I mean, she looked after us. She looked after everyone. That was just in her nature. She was kind. She was loving. Um, she always put others first. And our family was our life, really. Um, she, I mean, we we all, I think we all go through hard times in life, but my mum had this amazing knack of holding everything together when things were at, at, at their worst, really and truly. Um, she looked after my dad had had end stage heart failure, and she looked after him for the last three years of his life in the house. Um, there was very towards the end we had some carers coming in, but she nursed him, you know, everything, washed him, dressed him. Um, th- there was no, there was never a question of him going anywhere else or 
um, she just had that compassion all the time to to, to care for people. Um, and I suppose in, when when she got a, when she became unwell, her biggest her, the, the thing that made her most sad was that she wasn't going to be able to see me, my brother, and my sister. And that was the thing that she, that really brought her, I think, the greatest sadness, that she didn't want to leave us. Um, again, she was never talking about herself, even when she was really unwell. She was more worried about the effect it was going to have on us. Um, and she, you know, she she liked a good good song, good party. She liked a good dance. Um, <laughs> um, she was a brilliant. She used to write poems. She was fantastic at writing poems. She used to write them for everyone's birthdays. Um, and she was just really. She was a fantastic woman. She was. Um, she was my mum. Yeah. yeah, she sounds ace. Yeah. She really does. You mentioned that you've been putting stuff out on Twitter and people have been getting in touch with you about it. What have people been saying to you about it? Yeah, it, it was really, it was it kind of took me aback, actually. Um, it was a lot of kind of private messages sent, which was understandable. Um, I think there was, there was a lot of people with, with positive feedback, as in saying that, their loved ones were very well cared for and that they were well looked after and and in, in that theme maybe it's just because I'm in, I'm in part of care there was a lot of people saying things like you know once once the hospice got involved or once the community palliative care team got involved or once mum or dad was, were seen by the hospital palliative care team you know things were a bit better um, there was a few people got in touch who had had pan have had or have pancreatic cancer, um, who were doing really well, um, and had you know been diagnosed a number of years ago and were still doing well. Some of them had, had surgery, some of them had had chemotherapy. Um, there was a really strong theme about nutrition about creon or, or pancreatic enzyme rep replacement therapy um, people possibly not not feeling that they knew what to do with it sometimes that um, they weren't sure of the role of it um, I think one of the striking things with pancreatic cancer is the, the weight loss and the effect it can have on people's enjoyment of food um, and and that's possibly slightly lost in all the other parts of its management. Um, so understanding how to use these supplements properly and um, kind of trying to rest that weight loss and the malabsorption of all the goodness in their food was really that seemed to be one of the the most important things to people. Um, that. And I suppose it's it's so integral to being human is eating and enjoying your food um, and being able to go to the toilet relatively normally. Um, and 
it's it's such a, a part of sort of social interaction. So that that came through very strongly, which kind of surprised me. And there was a lot of people just telling me what had happened with their their loved ones, and you know, there was a few people had mentioned that they they found how difficult they found it. Um, I think visually seeing quite often the language that was used was, you know, a big strapping man, you know, um, disappeared to nothing, you know, and, and that's, you know, it's very, very emotive, very powerful image. And that's someone's, that uh, was, you know, someone's dad or their, their brother and, 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 that that has a lasting a kind of a lasting effect on people, and um, to hear that, and um, sorry to, to to see that, um, and I think that's another important thing with pancreatic cancer and and any any condition where um, the prognosis isn't isn't good as a whole, and. Um, is what ha- what goes through people's minds when they're told that they have that diagnosis, and how it's put, how it's put forward to them, um, and then also the the aftermath of when someone dies, dealing with that um, quite rapid progression of a of an illness and seeing someone um, that you love become less well. And I, and kind of left wondering how how did that happen? Um, a lot of people had mentioned that they had got involved with charity work afterwards, um, and they 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 didn't realise just how little research, I suppose, had been done on pancreatic cancer in the past. Um, I know there's a few. Trial was going on in the UK at the moment, um, but it still overall remains a very difficult condition to, to treat and manage. Um, and a lot of people really using things as a you know using that experience to help others, um, doing charity work and getting involved, which I thought was excellent. Thank you so much to Tony for talking with me for the podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. If you want to follow Tony on Twitter, you can. You just need to search for existential underscore doc. You can find him there. I will put that in the show notes as well. So you uh, can just click on that and find him. Thank you as well for listening to this episode. Please remember you can share this podcast, you can leave us a review and a rating and it really, really, really does help when it comes to getting other people to be more aware of the podcast. We're here every day in November raising awareness of pancreatic cancer. You can find out more about what we do at purplerainbow.co.uk and of course, I'll be back tomorrow.